0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021. I'm Bill Nygut, we're at the end of another week. On Political Rewind, and I'm very glad all of you have joined us for the show uh, today. Uh, Because it's Friday, Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter, columnist, she authors the Political Insider column, which you read in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays. She also oversees the uh, Jolt. Which is uh, a daily rundown of uh, great little tidbits about what's happening in politics that you can see at ajc.com. Patricia, how are you this morning?
2: I'm
3: doing great. Thank you.
1: And we're having a little bit of trouble there with your audio. Uh, we'll try to establish it a little bit better in, in a second here. Um, we'll try again. So, uh, Patricia, you're, you've already posted your Sunday column online, right?
3: Simple. Yeah,
1: we're yeah, we're having a problem. We're gonna uh, Patricia. We're gonna try to reconnect with you I'm so I'm very very sorry about that Uh, Maria Saporta. Uh, is back with us again, and we're very glad she is. You know, Maria is uh, really one of the legendary journalists in Metro Atlanta for many years. She was the go-to reporter for business news and continues to be in many ways. Um, Now, as the founder and contributor to the Supporta uh, Report, Maria, uh, we're really glad to have you with us. I noticed that your most recent column on Supporter Report is about, a, uh, about the Woodruff Foundation giving a big grant to uh, a Chattahoochee River project. What is that all about?
0: Yes, um, the Woodruff Foundation gave $9 million to the Trust for Public Land to implement the pilot project of 2.7 miles of trails and parks along Cobb County's uh, side of the river directly across from the city of Atlanta. So it's supposed to be a demonstration project, very similar to like what the east side trail was for the Beltline. And uh, we'll see. Hopefully uh, they they have a little bit more money to raise, but uh, it's already starting the projects on its way.
1: Well, our listeners, if they want to read your column and all of the other uh, journalists who you have reporting for you, uh, they can do it at supporterreport.com. Patricia, you're back with us. Your column is already posted, um, and you're talking about the city of Gainesville, which is sort of in an interesting place in terms of demographics as opposed to partisan politics, right?
3: Yeah, it was such a great trip. Um, The city of Gainesville has Uh, between a 40 and 50 percent Latino population. And we'll know more once the final census figures come out. Um, And uh, the assumption is that then that must be a very democratic county now in Hull County because of the demographic changes. It's actually still an absolute GOP stronghold, hasn't really changed much from a 70 percent GOP dominance, um, over the last 20 years. And I talked to a lot of people about why that is. And it's really a rare, bright spot for, G- for Republicans um, really still appealing to a diverse community. So I thought it was just a great trip. And so I wrote about it for Sunday.
1: Um, we should tell people it is part of your continuing Uh, journey across the state of georgia which will go on for some time now while you talk to voters and elected officials and others as they prepare for the 2022 election it's been fun to read your pieces um speaking of uh uh, the hispanic community in gainesville chuck cook knows it very very well chuck is one of the country's leading uh, immigration attorneys uh chuck you're um you were just given a pretty significant honor. I, I apologize. I should have looked to see what it exactly is. I'm going to make you do it. What, what were you just awarded?
4: Uh, the American Immigration Lawyers Association uh, recognized my uh, pro bono and community efforts uh, and very grateful to them for doing that. But uh, none of this happens, as you know, in a vacuum. So I'm just grateful to those that make possible what I can do for others.
1: Uh, but you're also on the weekends, Farmer Chuck Cook. Uh, you have a great people who follow you on social media will see you have a great farm uh, up in uh, Tennessee.
4: We are having a little bit of fun uh, learning the farming life, and uh, nothing's better than growing tomatoes and eating them at night. It's just the, the best dinner uh, at all, you could possibly imagine. All
1: right. Uh, we're gonna talk to you about uh, some big stories in immigration as part of the show today So I'm really happy you're with us and we're joined for the first time today uh, by Stanley Stanley Dunlap who uh, is a reporter for uh, Georgia reporter Stanley. Thank you so much for being with us. We always like to have a first-time panelist on the show Introduce her or himself to our listeners a little bit. So tell us a little about your background Stanley.
2: Well, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. I've, I've been a fan and been listening for a while, and it's great to uh, actually be on the panel. But yeah, I'm with the Georgia Recorder. We're um, a nonprofit uh, news organization. It's been, we're going to be celebrating uh, next month our two year uh, anniversary. I've been covering um, news here in Georgia previously at the Macon Telegraph for, for a little over three or four years, and uh, been in the news business for um, going on over a dozen years, but mainly we, we're a small staff, so we kind of we kind of cross-pollinate in different beats. But I've I've been covering a lot of the election coverage, uh, politics, um, some of the criminal justice reform efforts, and so kind of been been pretty busy uh, keeping us busy here with everything that's been going on here in Georgia
1: politics. Yeah, I noticed uh, on the Georgia Recorder site that you covered the uh, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, hearings uh, earlier in the, the week, uh, when when she was trying to call attention to the need for what she believes is the need for Congress to pass voter protection laws, partly as a response to the laws that Georgia has put in place here. So, um, thank you very much for being with us today, Patricia. I do want to start with COVID today because you know it it's beca- it's suddenly becoming a major story in Georgia as it is in other states again. Um, We now see there is a, I've been careful about the words I use, spike, whatever, surge, I'm not sure about the right words to describe it, so I'm just gonna gonna give you data from the Department of Public Health, Georgia Department of Public Health website. As of yesterday, Patricia, um, the Department of Public Health reports 1,250 new cases of coronavirus, of COVID-19, with a seven-day average of 871 new cases. Now, compare that to June 28th, less than a month ago. On June 28th, there were 130 new cases, a seven-day average, as of that date, of 249. We also know that uh, it's mostly because of the Delta variant And the Delta variant accounts for almost 70% of all new cases at a time when only 44% of Georgians are fully vaccinated. Patricia, I tee you up to talk about all that and more.
3: Well, so, you know, you just went through the data. The facts are that cases are going up. Cases are going up um, among those who are unvaccinated. Vaccinated here in Georgia. Hospitals are seeing more people in their ICUs, and that's those are just the facts. And um, with fewer than a majority of Georgians um, vaccinated, despite really the best efforts, I would say, of um, the governor's office, of uh, a a lot of hospitals, a lot of doctors trying to get the word out. Um, It's just a very stubborn problem. And it is now, unlike June, unlike last year, it is now preventable. And we know that. And so I think the frustration from a public policy standpoint is just um, getting to people, convincing them um, how necessary this is, and then um, finding a way to Get to them not once but twice. It, the The logistics are easier than they used to be, but they're still there, um, and it's a it, they have not been able to solve this problem yet.
0: Yes, um, I wanted to just bring in a global dimension to all of this. Uh, Michelle Nun, who's the CEO of Care, spoke to Atlanta Rotary this week, and the message was that. And basically the line was, nobody is safe until everybody is safe. That, yes, uh, we can be looking at Georgia, we can be looking at the United States, but as long as most of the world is not vaccinated, we are uh, vulnerable to any of these variants from coming in. And Atlanta is home to all these global health organizations that are actually working to try and figure out ways to... Uh, manufacture, distribute, deliver vaccines uh, to developing nations. And so it's ironic to me that uh, Atlanta is a home for global health and a leader in trying to get the rest of the world vaccinated and that Georgia has such a uh, a dismal uh, track record in this regard.
1: Um, Yeah, and and I do want to talk about this um, in terms of just last night. Uh, Kathleen Toomey, the director of uh, public health, the head of uh, public health for the state of Georgia, held a forum at Morehouse School of Medicine uh, with a number of other people from the community um, to talk about how important it is for people to get vaccinated. Uh, She basically said, uh, among other things in her remarks, quote, all of the vaccines are safe and effective and nothing is more dangerous than a serious case of COVID itself. Uh, Stanley, um, getting that message out is increasingly difficult, as we've kind of said. I want to play Governor Kemp's most recent... I I said on the show earlier this week that we had to give Governor Kemp credit uh, back when the virus was really, really at a peak, that he and Dr. Toomey did make a statewide tour uh, encouraging people to get vaccinated, but that it seems he's been much quieter in the last few months... And I did ask the question of whether or not that's because he knows as a Republican who needs Republican votes, talking about vaccination can sometimes be uh, troublesome. So I want to play a, a, a video that he did post on Twitter the other day. And then let's talk about the way in which he framed it. Here's Governor Kemp.
4: I want to share a quick COVID update. Uh, Here in Georgia, as we've seen across the country, cases are going up post July 4th holiday. We're also seeing hospitalizations start to rise. The patients that we're seeing in the hospitals are predominantly people that are not vaccinated. This is a great opportunity for you to talk to your medical professional, your local pharmacist, other people you trust about making a good healthcare decision for you and whether to get vaccinated or not. I have been, my family has been. Um, It makes me more confident, but that's an individual health decision. I would encourage you to take the opportunity
1: to learn more, uh, to consider what to do. So, Stanley, I suppose there's two ways to look at this. One, you could say he's hesitant to just tell people, please go out and get vaccinated because he knows there's so much conservative pushback to vaccines. I suppose the other side of that is that we've learned that uh, telling people to get vaccinated is not really the best way for, to encourage people to get vaccinated. You could look at it both ways, Stanley.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. And I think this message has kind of been consistent with uh, when we take back, we go back to uh, when the pandemic first hit and we got into the debate about masks and mandates and, and even at that time, Governor Kemp was saying that you know we, we should you know wear masks It reduce the uh, chances of uh, spreading the uh, coronavirus. But he also would be pretty clear that he he wasn't in favor of, of of mandating masks, and that he it was a you know personal responsibility. And and so I think he, he, we're seeing that same kind of uh, stance that he's, he's ta- he took back then. He, he's taken that as well with the uh, current debate about the uh, vaccines and. And, and yeah, and I, and I do think it is part, part pretty much it's about politics as well. That we know that there are a good number of uh, high percentage of Republicans who are uh, opposed to that. And there's the um, the idea that you know the government can't tell me what I should be doing, and 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 they don't want to be, um, you know, kind of pushed into a corner. And so I think that, that when we hear remarks like this from Kemp, he's pretty much playing it carefully to say it's important to get it done, but also not to uh, kind of alienate um,
1: a lot of his base. And, and yet, Chuck Cook, let's face it, the, the virus, the lack of vaccines is especially uh, dominant in rural parts, conservative Republican parts of the state, so Trump parts of the state. And you have to wonder whether Governor Kemp's sort of soft peddling vaccines, as he does in that uh, video, is uh, helping in any way.
4: Well, it doesn't appear to be helping. And now that you see national Republicans basically begging people to get vaccinated because they're seeing their voters die. I mean, this is not rocket science to figure out. You get the vaccine, you won't die. You don't get the vaccine, you could die. This, this is not that hard to figure out. Uh, I'm glad that at least some national Republicans are coming around. I think, I think Governor Kemp will get a little bit stronger here in the next couple of weeks. We'll see. Yeah,
1: that's right. We do have Republicans who are starting uh, in Washington to, say, get vaccinated. Maria?
0: Yeah, I was going to say this past week, it seemed like a lot of Republicans got the vaccine religion, you know, from Governor DeSantis in Florida, where they're saying, hey, guys, go get the vaccine, which was actually refreshing to hear uh, Republicans get on that bandwagon. I I wish uh, Governor Kemp would do the same.
1: So, Patricia, Here's a, a Georgia politician who's not jumping on that bandwagon. Um, what a surprise. Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was banned from Twitter for 12 hours because of misleading statements Twitter says she made about COVID-19 and vaccinations. And she held a news conference in her office uh, to, uh, to adamantly uh, 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 fight back against Twitter. And at the same time, she continued to make misleading statements about the vaccination and COVID. Let's just listen to a little of what she told reporters in that news conference.
3: I think it has to be a choice and not a mandate, not mandated by schools, not mandated by businesses and not mandated um, by the government. And this is an important um, issue for everyone. See, right now, we have many reports of side effects from the vaccines. And according to the CDC website that anyone can look up, uh, there are reports of over 12,000 deaths. You see, I put on my tweet 6,000, but I just checked it's been updated and it's over 12,000 now.
1: All right, Patricia, that's fairly alarming to hear that figure. But, but let's talk about the uh, reality of that. Let's do a fact check. It is true that CDC, in compliance with an FDA mandate, has to do what they call report vaccine adverse events. And they have done that on their website, and they've used the figure first 12,000, they reduced it to 6,000. But here's what the CDC's website says about that. Quote, reports of adverse events following vaccination, including deaths, do not necessarily mean a vaccine caused a health problem. This is because the FDA requires healthcare workers to report any death after a COVID 19 vaccination, even if it's unclear whether the vaccine was the cause. Furthermore, a review of available clinical information, including death certificates, autopsy, and medical records, has not established a causal link to COVID 19 vaccines. Patricia?
3: So Marjorie Taylor Greene in this space is not just unhelpful. It is so completely damaging. Um, She literally has no idea what she's talking about. There's just no other way to say it. Um, She's reading data from the CDC's website that is being interpreted inaccurately, um, spreading false information to the point that Twitter has taken down um, her entire Twitter account for spreading misinformation about vaccines and about the, about COVID-19. And it just gives such a safe space in the world for people who just don't want to get the vaccine for whatever reason. Um, it gives them a safe space to say, well, a congresswoman says that I, uh, maybe I shouldn't get it. She herself won't say if she's gotten it. Um, although her parents did get vaccinated, um, it just creates an element that is so counterproductive to the effort to have um, non-politicized, non-partisan, reliable medical information around this vaccine. Um, And if you think about how much time, money, and effort politicians put into getting people to vote. I think voters probably get between 15 and 25 messages to do that one simple thing. Um, At this point, they've gotten one or two messages from their political leaders. It's conflicting information. Um, It's sort of soft-pedaled. Go ask your doctor if you should do it or not. I don't know that it's up for debate, Um, and it is is so clearly the cause of why we have a 44% vaccination rate here in the state.
1: Chuck, um, I, I haven't heard this in Georgia yet, although you may have, but uh, in Texas, uh, Governor Abbott has very controversially uh, but ordered his law enforcement, his state and local law enforcement uh, officers, to begin making arrests, state arrests, of uh, immigrants who cross the border illegally. Uh, there's questions as to whether he has the power to do that. Immigration is a federal uh, matter. But one of the reasons he says he's doing it is to keep... The people of Texas stay safe. Now, you can start with Texas if you want, but then in a larger sense, uh, there are people who believe that undocumented uh, immigrants could be spreading uh, the virus, and therefore we need to be careful about them. Your response to that? Uh,
4: the, the anti-immigrant trope of immigrants spreading disease has long been uh, an American tradition. Uh, the facts, you know, these I mean, facts are terrible things, especially if you don't believe in them. Uh, But 90 percent of the immigrants, when they come to the United States and are detained by CBP, (laughs) agree to take the vaccine, which is about a 60 percent higher rate than Texans taking the vaccine. And very few of these individuals have actually tested for positive when they come into the country. Uh, But Governor Adams, by the way, is arresting people under state law for trespassing. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how often the police spend their time arresting people for trespassing, uh, but it's not very much. And all that means is they're going to cost the governor, the government of Texas, money because the feds aren't going to take them. The feds process them for immigration, put them into the court system, and off they go. Uh, this is again one of these. He's up. I think he's up for reelection, if I'm not mistaken, coming up here. And uh, you know, you have to burnish your anti-immigrant credentials, I guess, in Texas in order to get elected uh, in the GOP primary. It just seems uh, that it's sad that the trope of Immigrants being disease carriers continues on in the twenty first century. Frankly, it's
1: kind of sad. Um, uh, Stanley, uh, of course, what may also be going on here is Greg Abbott in Texas, Ron DeSantis in Florida are both beginning to position themselves for possible runs for president in 2024. So we're likely to see both of them continue to find ways to uh, call national attention to themselves moving forward, Stanley. Yeah, and that's
2: certainly correct. And we're seeing this from uh, whether you're talking about national races uh, um, or we're talking about a lot of the statewide races here in Georgia. And, and, and even, you know, the U.S. Senate where we're seeing a lot of these decisions are based on politics and not necessarily the best policies. And so um, that's what we're, what's unfortunately playing out when, when you're getting some of this misinformation or in the case there in Texas where <laughs> they're blaming it on on uh, immigrants crossing the border uh, instead of focusing more on the residents within Texas who haven't already been vaccinated and kind of uh, – kind of push, urging them to to uh, to get vaccinated. And that, in the end, would actually have a much larger impact of curtailing the uh, the infection rates there and, and potentially uh, dealing with any of the, the variants that uh, may be coming down the line as well. But uh, political gamemanship, we're in campaign season, and we're going to continue seeing this all the way through the primaries and up to November for a lot of these uh, decisions and, and national policies.
1: All right, Um, thank you, Stanley Dunlap. Uh, We're gonna give you the last word in this segment because we gotta get to a break, Uh, but when we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Stanley Dunlap of Georgia Recorder, Maria Supporter, founder of Supporta Report, Chuck Cook, immigration attorney, and Patricia Murphy on today's political Rewind. Patricia, I do want to, one more quick item about uh, the uh, uh, COVID misinformation. Politico filed a pretty interesting piece this week in which they reported that last fall, uh, there were people in the administration and larger Democratic circles urging President Biden to name some sort of misinformation czar, someone who would oversee an effort to fight back ...against what everyone knew was going to be a huge misinformation campaign about COVID and the vaccine, and the president resisted uh, doing that, and there are people now who feel it was a mistake for him not to address, have someone addressing this all along, Patricia. Patricia.
3: I don't know. I think even the concept of a misinformation czar feeds a little bit into um, the attacks on Democrats for trying to shove this down Mm. people's throats. So I do, I think the best um, defense against misinformation is accurate information over and over and over and trying to recruit really reliable, believable spokespeople in the communities where they are uh, trusted and believed. And that really is why Sean Hannity saying, please get vaccinated may do more than any Democratic governor could do for the rest of their terms. Um, They really need reliable, trusted, conservative voices to be out there saying this needs to happen. And it's not just in the conservative community. There are multiple communities, I think, where there is vaccine hesitancy. Um, And uh, it's just going to be all about drilling down and finding the right spokespeople to, to convince them that it's the best way. It's safer to get the vaccine than
0: to not.
1: Okay, um, let's move on, uh, Chuck. Cook. Uh, let me. I want to address something that I said on political rewind the other day, and you in an email to me back and forth with me, kind of made me aware that I was wrong about something. I the other day when we talked about uh, District Court Judge Hannon in Texas, who was the judge, uh, federal judge, who ruled that DACA was illegal because. Uh, The president uh, at the time, Obama, did not have the executive power to uh, put that program in place. Um, I'd gotten some mail from people that said, well, what'd you expect? He was a George W. Bush uh, appointee. And I said, well, but President George W. Bush was a huge advocate of an immigration reform plan, so Hannon may not be so bad after all. You pointed out to me that Hannon has been one of the most anti-immigration judges in the country.
4: Yeah, in fact, it was Judge Hannon that struck down the DAPA program that President Obama had uh, proposed in 2014. Uh, and he has, re- you know, when you're a plaintiff, you get to pick where you sue. It's no accident they sued in this court in Texas because they knew exactly what they were getting uh, <laughs> with Judge Hannon and his position on, on immigration as it, as it pertains to the federal power of the president.
1: Uh, Maria, the immigration reform, as you know, has been something that Republicans and Democrats for decades have tried to make a reality. And I wonder from your perspective, knowing the business community as you do and have for so long, um, the fact that we continue to struggle about things like DACA, whether these uh, recipients should be allowed to stay in the country, should be protected, whether Whether we should be more aggressive in getting undocumented immigrants out of our state, Uh, how does that? It's 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 a hard position for the business community to deal with.
0: Well, I I think in Georgia the business community has been particularly strong in advocating for immigration reform. They know that uh, labor shortages, um, our agricultural industry, our tourism industry, so much does um, require uh, labor. And um, immigrant labor uh, accounts for us having food on the table in many cases. So I think, uh, yeah, the business community has been advocating for this. But, um, you know, politically, it has become so polarized. Uh, Don't forget that uh, George W. Bush was one of the big leaders of immigration Mm -hmm. reform and was working on Mm -hmm. bipartisan plans to get it done.
3: Um, Speaking of politics around this issue, um, when I went to Gainesville uh, to write my column about the politics up there, my question uh, really for everybody there was this is such a heavily Latino area. My assumption was that it would not also, uh, that that a majority of that community would not also be supporting Republicans. And um, Latino activists up there told me, that there is still a a strong strain of Reagan Republicanism among Latinos in Gainesville because he signed immigration reform in 1986. So that choice more than 30 years ago by a Republican president continues to yield gains for Republicans. And so I think if Republicans drilled down a little bit more into the politics and the reality of the politics on the ground, um, it is continuing to be a benefit to have sponsored and come through on immigration reform um, in that part of the state that is heavily Republican, and that's a big piece of why.
4: You know, one of the other reasons why there's still a big Republican majority in uh, Gainesville is so many of the Latinos are undocumented. Um, and And a lot of Republicans are afraid that, if they legalize people, they'll magically become Democrats. And there is no historical evidence for that, none whatsoever. Uh, and, in fact, if you look at politics going back, uh, when we've had legalization or positive immigration programs, people that get the benefits from that tend to favor the party that helped them do it. Uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of another, another one of these unfacts facts that, that live. But I have to comment on, uh, as this ties into the business community, because when you sue the government, you have to show that you have a right to sue the government. And in the Texas lawsuit that Judge Hannon used to strike down the case, the argument that Judge Hannon agreed to that gave Texas the right to sue was this. And this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, he said, uh, because of DACA, it makes it more difficult for legal residents of Texas to obtain work. That, that's the standing that he gave, that because DACA kids can now work, Legal residents of Texas can't work. This is a state that has a million job openings. And then if you took the almost, it's, it's got to be close to 300,000 DACA recipients in Texas out, they'd have 1.3 million job openings. Uh, it's uh, This idea that immigrants hurt our economy is, again, one of these unfacts that, that people keep repeating, but the business community knows is not true. Uh, And hopefully, one day, common sense may prevail in Congress.
1: That may be too much to hope for, though. Stanley, um, uh, Chuck may take issue with this, but I thought Judge Hannon's ruling, uh, considering that that Chuck tells us what an anti-immigrant judge he's been, I thought in some ways his ruling was relatively um, modest. he, He basically, what he really did was attack... Uh, the the power of executive orders in terms of what Obama did. But he did say that there should be no action taken against existing uh, DACA recipients. Those have already been given DACA status. He said that uh, people can continue to make application to uh, be protected uh, as uh, DACA recipients. They just cannot be processed and added to the list. I mean, it seemed to me, Stanley, what the judge was really doing was saying, number one, Supreme court, it's about time you made a definitive decision about this instead of kind of, you know, middle of the road decisions you in the past and two, Congress, come on, act. What do you think, Stanley?
2: Yeah, I think that's the case. Um, and it makes sense that, you know, we've got millions of of people who are kind of been in limbo for years. Um, you know, uncertain about what their status is. And I know it's been, it's a pretty scary situation and, and, of course, you know they, they want to have it turn out in their favor, but they also want some resolution and not, you know, one year, you know, DACA's here, then there's a ruling against it or, or there's a court order. Um, that, that I think the most important thing is to, to kind of get something that's more set in stone in the program that's been – that seems like it's worked pretty well and that, it, that if you, uh, you know, you talk with any of the DACA recipients, um, they're, you know, all, you know, thankful Uh, And it's been helpful to them. And so um, I I kind of uh, agree that, you know, we we need some type of resolution. And and the only way to ultimately get that may be, you know, whether Congress or Supreme Court, but someone something definitive so that, you know, this they're not, uh, you know, it's not wishy washy. And and there's something uh, more concrete that they can uh, kind of think they're. Kind of deal with moving moving forward and and let this uh, let DACA, you know, the the program continue uh, um, as it's been been operating. But
4: a couple of really interesting things. Well, you are wrong, but right. Let me explain why. (laughs) Yes, he said immigration. You can keep taking four hundred ninety five dollars from people and do nothing. Well, who's going to give the government $495 when they don't really have $495 to get nothing? Second thing, the Biden administration has actually caused a massive problem because of this. Everybody knew this decision was coming. But President Biden has 80,000 unadjudicated new DACA cases that people have been filing since December. And those are 80,000 kids for the most part. And these young, because it's young people applying for the first time that are now out of luck. But the other thing that people don't realize is the oldest DACA recipients just turned 40. Nobody, Everybody thinks of DACA as teenagers, but the oldest oh. DACA have just turned 40 on June 15th. Um, the last thing on, that I'll just mention on this is just, this is a really interesting decision. First of all, it's 77 pages long, but it relies mostly on the dissent in the DACA Supreme Court case as opposed to the majority. And keep in mind that the majority decisions in Supreme Court in DACA said this. Hey, President Trump, you can't cancel DACA by executive order. You have to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. And Judge Hannon said, well, you you improperly created DACA because you didn't follow the Administrative Procedures Act. One of those things doesn't make sense, and I'm going to (laughs) go not with the Supreme Court on this one.
1: Stanley, finish up this part of the conversation for yeah, us. And
2: just one final point, and and uh, Charles mentioned that with the age, you know, a lot of these DACA recipients, this is, you know, they grew up in Georgia. This is what this is their home. You know, they may have a, a you know another country that they're you know native from, but as far as you know, growing up in school and friends and, and work and and sometimes even a lot of times even maybe language, this is. You know america or georgia or texas or whatever state they're from that is considered their home and so you know they i think that's an important aspect to to point out for a lot of these people that that they are young and that they did grow up in this a lot of them did grow up in this country and and so a lot of their culture and ways are 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 in a sense american-centric
1: okay um Patricia, let's change the subject. I said on the show yesterday, I felt like I was flirted with, I was (laughs) courted, and then spurned by David Ralston, who said on our show six weeks ago, well, he didn't say yes, but he gave us lots of reasons to think maybe he really was going to run for the United States Senate. Of course, now he said no. But in the meantime, you posted an item yesterday that makes me wonder if I'm being toyed with again, this time by David Perdue. You point out that he went to Washington, he met with Mitch McConnell, he had lunch in the Senate dining room, and so the question is, has he changed his mind about possibly challenging Raphael Warnock?
3: Bill, first of all, it's not just you. It's not you, it's them. I want to assure you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, David Perdue could have put all of this to rest. He was asked by multiple reporters in Washington, oh, what are you doing here? And he just wouldn't answer, not interested in answering. We haven't heard from his team that he's not considering, so... In the world of political journalism, that means you might be considering. Um, And also, uh, the reality for Republicans is that although they do have three announced candidates, they do not have a marquee name in that race against Raphael Warnock. And Herschel Walker is still just simmering on the sidelines Uh, with President Trump's endorsement. And uh, that just has frozen this field totally. And so every time we see somebody pop up who might run for the Senate, it needs to be a big name. It needs to be somebody who could fund themselves quickly. Um, And so that's why there is this speculation continuing, because that's a field that doesn't really match the challenge quite yet.
1: Yeah, I, Maria. I said yesterday you can help me with this because you've been a journalist your entire career. I'm not sure we should even mention Herschel Walker's name until he says something one way or the other. But I mean, what, do you, what do you? This this Senate race, really, as Patricia points out, Maria, is not help. Republicans are not getting it together to find the big name they need against Warnock, who's raising uh, just tons of money
0: yeah actually, it's been kind of surprising that they haven't coalesced behind a, a marquee name as as Patricia mentioned um you know I think even Kelly Loeffler was looking at it at one point and she could sell finance and she does have a name but uh it, it we saw how it turned out um in twenty twenty so or actually <laughs> earlier this year after the uh, runoff um but I think it's it's gonna be fascinating because. Stacey Abrams hasn't yet come out to say whether she's running for governor. So you've got a lot of fluidity on both sides of the aisle uh, for 2022.
1: Um, While the ball's in your court, um, meanwhile, uh, we did learn yesterday that the grandson of Zell Miller, Brian Miller, has decided to jump into electoral politics. He declared... He will run uh, for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. There are already a couple of Democrats in that race. But, Maria, what's particularly fascinating about Brian jumping in is that he says he's going to restore his grandfather's legacy program, the Hope Scholarship, to its former glory. And it has been picked away at for a variety of reasons uh, since. uh, But— it's not a bad thing to be uh, hearkening back to the Hope Scholarship, which has been of such incredible value to so many families across the state of Georgia.
0: Well, the most surprising thing to me was the question was would he run as a Democrat or a Republican? Because there was a lot of question yeah. uh, when Zell left office of what, which party he was really supporting. Um, so uh, I guess the true miller democratic nature's come out i and i think you know the hope scholarship is clearly one of zell miller's great legacies and it's certainly worth preserving so uh it, it's a good it's a good stand for him to a good platform for him
1: of course, Stanley. One of the things that people have criticized Hope with over the years, and and they've been have tried to make some adjustments, is that it gives scholarships to families that really don't need it because it rewards uh, students who have gone to better schools where they've been able to have better academic achievements, and and so there have been concerns about whether Hope has spread evenly across uh, all the the the. the wide variety of economic uh, incomes that families have in Georgia.
2: Yeah, and that's correct. And I don't think there's going to be a, a necessarily a perfect program. And I'd be interested to see what Lazelle uh, Miller's grandson's plans are for kind of reshaping. Or, uh, we know that the health scholarship has been kind of picked apart, and it's uh, you known from, you know, with the rising tuition and And the state legislators taking the money away, it's not nearly as uh, quite as meaningful as it has been. And so um, there's always an issue when you're dealing with, whether you're talking about, uh, we talked about a lot of education scholarships or or what we kind of call waivers with with schools through the session and the the, uh, inequality or equity of of those terms and who they're benefiting is always a major source of uh, contention. And And so I I think it's kind of, you know, it's a good thing that Brian Miller is uh, kind of going off his grandfather's legacy in his campaign. But I I would I think no matter who is, uh, you know, lieutenant governor or, or there probably needs to be a kind of a deeper look into the Hope Scholarship and figuring out the best way that it should be managed
1: moving forward. Chuck Cook, before I get to a break, I do have to say, and Maria support is right here with me, I was, and she may have been there. I was at the news conference when candidate Zell Miller announced the Hope Scholarship would be his major issue in the campaign, and it truly did transform in many ways that entire race. Chuck? It,
4: uh, it absolutely did, except the Democratic Party of 2021 is not the Democratic Party of Zell Miller 30 years ago. Um, You know, Brian seems like a great guy, but doesn't appear to have any involvement with the base of the party in 2021. So I'm not sure that he's going to go anywhere in this primary race.
1: Uh, Patricia, weigh in on that and we're going to get to a break.
3: Uh, Yeah, well, he uh, really is coming from outside the Democratic uh, Party system right now. He's not somebody who's extremely well-known. Um, statewide Um, and on the Republican side there is already a candidate named Butch Miller so if you told somebody look at this ballot Bill Miller's grandson's on the ballot I think even there are two Millers on there I think the name alone is not going to win this race Um, so he's going to have a lot of work to do.
1: All right Uh, that's a great point. Uh, Let's get to our final break of the show and back with more in a moment. A quick program note, we are, uh, gonna take a real turn on the show on Monday, uh, because it's midsummer, and, you know, a lot of you go into the beach, and you're looking for something to read, and so we are gonna talk on Monday to one of the world's most popular writers of, uh, crime fiction, who isn't in Latin, Karen Slaughter. She has, uh, She's been a best-selling author internationally forever. She's written about 20 novels. Her new book is called False Witness. But one of the reasons it can be interesting to talk to her is that this is the first novel I've read that is set entirely within the coronavirus world. The, the, the people in the book are all wearing masks. They're worried about catching the virus. They're beginning to talk about vaccinations, how they interact. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation, partly because I love police procedurals and cop novels. So Karen Slaughter will be with us on Monday to talk about False Witness, her new book, and I'm excited about that conversation. All right, um, Maria Sporta, let me start with you, if I could. Um, So we had another mayoral forum uh, the other night, Atlanta Mayoral Forum, and the Buckhead City issue was a dominant theme again. Of course, all the declared candidates saying we cannot afford for Buckhead to split off from the rest of the city. But that movement is real. It seems to be gaining momentum. And you've got to wonder whether Republicans at the state capitol maybe are enthusiastic to some extent about it. I can't get a handle on that. Can you?
0: Well, I think that it's a whole matter of stirring up some mischief um, and really inviting out of all the uh, 500,000 Atlanta residents, the one Atlanta resident they invited to the crime panel was the leader of the Buckhead City movement. And um, one thing that all the candidates made a big point of saying, the mayoral candidates said that we have to listen to what Buckhead wants, needs. Uh, There's probably an underlying theme there that maybe the current administration was not as sensitive to the needs and the concerns that Buckhead was uh, was raising. So uh, we shall see. But I've been told, uh, you know, I I was somewhat dismissive of the movement. um, And um, I've been told we should no longer be dismissive because there's some folks who really want to carry it over the line.
3: Yeah, I think that the um, the emotion in Buckhead is very real. The fear in Buckhead is very real. And the really the desperation to do something and almost anything to stop the crime in Buckhead is very real. Um, the, but the whole situation of Buckhead leaving Atlanta reminds me a lot of Brexit and that there is a single solution that that would have about six dozen other effects that are hard to really wrap your arms around. I'll give you a quick example. Um, The schools in Atlanta, um, APS schools in Buckhead, um, were Buckhead to leave Atlanta, those would remain APS schools, but the children in Buckhead would not be eligible for those APS schools. And so um, I asked the uh, organizers of the Buckhead Committee, what's the plan? And they said, oh, we're just, they're just gonna go to APS schools. it, there are so many reasons why that's not really possible and they had not even discussed it with APS yet and so um they may make some more progress on that but it's just one of many issues that when you start to talk about pulling a city out of an existing city instead of creating a city in a county um all of the, this cascade of difficulties ensues and um so the, the the emotion is real the solution may not be
1: patricia i don't quite i mean I understand there's a lot of emotion around this issue. I can understand that it's a political uh, 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 issue that Republicans can somehow, as as Maria says, cause mischief around. But thinking that Republican leaders in the legislature would uh, undermine the city of Atlanta, which is the obviously economic engine of the entire state, and allow Buckhead to split off, which would cause— Some people think economic catastrophe for the city of Atlanta just feels like something that, in the long run, you'd really be careful about doing.
3: Well, the question isn't would they let Buckhead split off? Would they let Buckhead vote to split themselves off? Would they allow a referendum among Buckhead voters? Um, the, the real problem in the legislature is that the buckhead legislators don't support this, and the Atlanta legislators don't mm-hmm. support this. And the support right now is coming from small rural communities who are um, uh, Republican, uh, have been speaking with Bill White. But the, the disconnect in the legislature and the legislative process is very real, but there's enough confusion that you could kind of see it sort of slipping away from people's grasp and at getting a momentum of its own.
1: Um, Stanley, before we run out of time, I, I want to change the subject and at least uh, a briefly address uh, the entire battle over voter rights, or I want a portion of the battle over voter rights going on right now in Washington, where Democrats are trying to get the, the Senate to pass at least the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill. Um, what's interesting is that this week, suddenly, there are voting rights groups that are um, are now turning their focus to, to President Biden, saying you have got to use the bully pulpit and find a way to let your to get your uh, uh, the message you've been giving out actually uh, uh, do something in terms of passing the laws. But what can the president do?
2: I mean, he's he's kind of stuck in a in a difficult position.
1: Uh, he's clearly stated,
2: his administration has from from day one that voting rights was was going to be a key, a priority for them, and they've continued to kind of express that message. But there's certainly some. I think when we saw the Arizona election law ruling come from the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court uh, just a few weeks back, I think that's added a lot more pressure, and that you know the time is running out. Uh, we need to get something passed federally because all, a lot of these state bills that we're going to get are getting challenged in court. You know, the, the chances of those being successful is a lot more difficult after the Supreme Court ruling kind of basically made it a, a possibly high burden to prove that these election laws are, are discriminatory based on, on
1: race or, or language. So I, I think Chuck, they have, you know, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Stanley, I've got to interrupt because we're just about out of time. One last quick note, Chuck, uh, what many people are saying out there is what Democrats are doing is focusing on voter turnout in the, in the next election, hoping the courts will take action, but the voting rights groups are saying that's not the way to do it. Uh, there's big concern about that, so Democrats are fighting about that, Chuck.
4: Well, it's, it's a fight they're going to have to have ultimately in the courts, but if you don't continue to drive the turnout, it doesn't matter what the court yep. do at the end of the day. Chuck, Turn I got,
1: in, it I got in. I got interrupted because we are way out of time. Chuck Cook, Patricia Murphy, and Maria supporter Stanley Dunlap. Thank you for being here today. I'm Bill Nigget. I don't even have time to tell you how I hope you'll take care, stay healthy, wear a mask when you need to, and get that vaccine. See you all on Monday. <laughs>